Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. This is the weekend of the 2020 IEEE International Symposium on Technology and Society, discussing public interest technologies in a four-day-long global online conference. In normal times, this conference would have taken place face-to-face facilitating lots of participants to debate their papers with their peers in person. But the COVID-induced online edition also has its advantages. More people from around the world can take part in the discussions and see the wealth of topics that are on the agenda. Quite a few of these issues have been addressed earlier in the first season of the Serious Privacy podcast, from ethical AI concerns to COVID apps, and from surveillance societies to mentoring the next generation of technology innovators. We are therefore honored to be able to contribute a little bit to this great conference with the first ever live edition of Serious Privacy. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're going to jump right into the unexpected question that we're accustomed to having. So here's the question, Paul. What are your Sundays usually like? Ooh, They can vary quite a lot, to be honest, but my favorite Sundays would be having a little bit of a sleep in, not too late, but get a bit of extra rest in the morning, read the newspapers with some good coffee and some breakfast, maybe go for a walk, see some friends, lots of cooking, ideally a good dinner with a glass of wine or a nice beer. Yeah, nice and relaxed. How do you manage to have nice and relaxing Sundays? My Sunday, well, I say planned out and fun when I say nice and relaxed. My Sundays are usually sleep late and play with the dogs. <laughs> That's about it for my Sundays. I'm going to get it for there. So let's dive right into the topic. was very pleased to be asked to do this, knowing that we may or may not have individuals that show up to be part of our podcast, and that's okay. We don't have a presentation. It's strictly a podcast where we talk. One of my friends, Professor Katina Michaels, who is the, I guess, the co-chair of the conference, and she's a professor at ASU. I'm also a law professor at ASU. She and I have spoken on panels together, typically around things like IoT or smart cities technology. So I absolutely love her academic credentials, the way she has to speak, her take on technology. So when she asked if we wanted to be part of this, it kind of came up accidentally. She was bragging on it on LinkedIn about the conference, advertising Mm -hmm. it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is basically what my dissertation is on, is how do you manage technology and privacy at public universities? Okay, tell me more. Which, of course, is related. Tell me more. Tell you more. Tell you more. Tell you more. Okay, I'm not going to sing, I promise. This is a virtual conference, which pretty much everything in 2020 has been. 
but it's a combination of the IEEE and public interest technology. And then the ISTAS, which I have to look up exactly what that stands for because I'm not good at remembering things. I think that would be International Symposium on Technology. See, I love you, Paul. That's the reason why I love you. And it's been four days, three days, and it's offered simultaneously in Europe, in Australia, and the United States. It has the different tracks. And I've been listening to some of the papers that individuals have been presenting in some of the other tracks. Absolutely fascinating. Just absolutely fascinating. The topics range, I can't even say they range from A to Z because they're literally all over the world and all over the technology spectrum. And some of the ones I listened to were fantastic. Some were students, you know, just getting started in their field of interest, looking at how do you solve the world problems. They have about 30 minutes to present their papers. And it's, I swear, it's hundreds of them. It's hundreds of them. And they're fascinating. So what's your favorite so far? Of the ones that I've listened to, I have to admit it was one I was listening to this morning. And he was talking about how the electives that they take in school for engineering and technology don't prepare you to actually practice in a data-driven world. And how a lot of the classes you're taking are set up under an academic model. He probably didn't say this, so I'm not going to attribute it to him. But I got the impression the requirements that you have to take for engineering or technology are not set up for actual practice in a real world. They're set up for an academic world. And that the electives aren't usually robust enough to satisfy an individual's interest in using technology Mm -hmm. to address the issues that we have in the world nowadays. And I agree with that. I mean, I've been trying to convince my school for years, five years going on now, to set up an online certificate for data protection and cybersecurity because everybody needs to know about it. Whether you're an engineer working with products, we've heard this from the data scientists who aren't taught privacy as part of their data science. It's not a requirement to work with data. But lawyers who want to know more about privacy, non-lawyers in privacy who want to know more about law, people who are designing who want to know Mm -hmm. more about law, because let's be frank, it's privacy law driving all this because security laws are there. We have some security laws, but overwhelmingly it's privacy laws that are driving what we're looking at and how you use the data. And I'll tell you a funny, yesterday I pulled up, I go out like once a week. Yesterday, I pulled up at a Target with my husband, and I think I've mentioned before, I have a personalized license tag that is from supporting the Arizona Science Center. So it's a black background Mm -hmm. with the green matrix numbers on it, and I have privacy, so you can't really mistake my car. There was a guy that pulled up almost right next to us. His was the exact same tag and had your data. Wow. (laughs) So I had to play a little bit of a stalker (laughs) moment and stop him, and he's a data scientist. Look at that. Look at that. You know, there there are like-minded people around it. And so it's interesting that our schools aren't really preparing people to work with real-world problems. So a symposium like this is absolutely needed. I agree with Salah, who is our um, host for today in the symposium, that it's a good symposium, but we miss being in person. We miss those water cooler conversations Mm -hmm. and passing each other in the hall. You and I were just speaking about it the other day. But how many problems get solved, whether you're at conferences or whether you're at work, 
just because you passed the right person at the right time in the right place. Oh, yeah. And you're like, hey. Yeah, that's those serendipitous moments that we all miss. That's absolutely true. I, let me just jump back a little bit because you mentioned universities should prepare people more for real life problems. And I, I fully agree with yes. that. And it's actually what we're trying to do at, at my university. I've mentioned it before. We're working on DPO courses. We have a, a GDPR course that has been ongoing for four years now that lots of people have followed by now, but we try to make it really practical. But we are also expanding the curriculum. Early next year, we hope to be launching a global privacy certificate based on common standards. Oh, that's fancy. I get mine to do it. And here you are succeeding. Oh, absolutely. And we're doing it initially online because we cannot do it face to face so uh, people can can join it. Well now that's a good way to take it. I yeah. started it online and they weren't prepared for that. Maybe if I had proposed it this <laughs> year when everything pretty much has to be. Yeah. Maybe it would be a thing, right? That that's how we're doing it and as of September next year we're launching an executive masters program in privacy and cybersecurity. Now when um, you say masters, masters in what? A masters in law. So an L- an LLM track. Okay. Yeah. Now you got my and LLM or uh, Master of Arts, that could also be. That depends a bit on the final accreditation that we get Love it. from the Dutch government. So for all the people with a technical background and the introduction into technology and coding uh, for the lawyers. <laughs> Which you realize that's going to be a challenge, right? Is that a requirement or is that an election? No, it, it is an elective, but it would really help the lawyers, I believe, including myself probably, to get a better understanding of what it is all about. And, and how software is built. Oh, yeah, because when I took coding way back in the 80s, we don't want to discuss the little boxes and if this, then that that Exa- we were playing exactly. with. And to get a bit of a better idea, if you have to assess technology, what it is that you are actually looking at, what is all that code on screen and how can you spot if something is going to a, a wrong database or if there is a data flow happening that is in, unintentional that you should intervene on as a privacy professional. So I think that's a very helpful start. And of course, during the curriculum, there will also be attention for for those issues. Oh, I love that. And I was going to say, Sala, if you want to jump in and speak, you are absolutely welcome to do so. We don't mind that at all. So one of the topics that I saw on the the schedule, and I haven't been able to hear the discussion on the paper yet, but I really like the the title uh, of the paper is, Can a Solution Also Be a Problem? And this was in relation to COVID apps, I believe. Of course. So the COVID app would be a solution to one of the challenges that we have, namely the the contact tracing and not knowing who we were around, especially if you go out in supermarkets or in the street and and whoever you have encountered. But can it also be a problem? And I thought it it is an interesting point of departure for an academic paper. What do you think about that question? Yeah. Oh, can a a solution Mm -hmm. also be a problem? I think it kind of answers itself, doesn't it? I mean, many times the solution is the problem. I mean, that's how we get to the Terminator (laughs) movies, right? Is the AI and the robots get smarter than the humans that are taking care of it and don't know how to secure it. So absolutely, I agree with that. And I love the fact that we have uh, young professionals or students that are just coming out of university that are looking at these problems as well and thinking about how to address them in advance. And I'll read you some of the other ones that are out here. And these aren't the ones that are like, ooh, you know, these are better than the others. It's just the range of topics that are being looked at is amazing. So implantable medical device Mm -hmm. databases, 
improving consumer access to post-market device performance. I mean, of course, we have medical device databases. Cyberbullying in society, outcomes from a social conclave conference. We've talked about the cyberbullying and society and the topics that impacts that that has. Costly emergencies approach to estimating risks for artificial intelligence, which goes into the one you just talked about, is can a solution also be a problem? Absolutely. It just goes on. Fairness of machine learning algorithms, the Tesseract optimization for data privacy and sharing economics, classification of Twitter users based on temporal topical interests. I mean, I'm blown away by the range of these. And by the way, this goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's hundreds of papers. uh, I was surprised as well. It really is. One that really did stick out to me because you and I have talked about this before, Mm -hmm. but clickbait, trust and credibility of digital news. And I hate clickbait. One, it always draws me in because of the interest, but then I get irritated because it's clickbait and it won't let me just go to the end of the slide. It wants to start with 20 Mm -hmm. pages of nonsense with background. And I just really want to see what this person looked like when they called him in public. Maybe you should just do a blog post, 10 reasons why you don't like clickbait. (laughs) That would probably, it would would be easy to do it. It would be easy to do it. But then let me ask you, because you come up with the titles of our podcast episodes. (laughs) Would you not consider those to be a little clickbaity as well to try to draw people into into listening to our episodes? They really are. And you're right, because I I think of you as the substance, as me as the comedy relief. And I know that that's (laughs) not completely the way it balances out. But yes, I come up with the titles because... In this world, if you don't catch someone's attention with a headline, their eyes just go right past it. For some reason, they don't engage their brain when they're looking at what to look at. They're engaging Mm -hmm. that mask that we all have to filter everything online through, which is essentially no thinking engaged. We just need something that our eyes catch and get our attention. And that's where clickbait started. But it also comes from the idea of having so much information thrown our way that one, we don't decide in a real thinking manner what we're going to pay attention to. But two, we very rarely actually look at the substance. How often nowadays are we looking at the titles of headlines of stories? And I think we were talking about this the other day with a COVID study by the US CDC and how the title of the story didn't actually match what was in the story. It's very misleading, but yet people share it and they talk about it and they believe in it and they form thoughts on it because of the headline without actually reading the substance of the story. So hopefully I'm not misleading in our titles. I mean, I think the substance of our title actually matches the substance of the podcast. But yeah, absolutely. You got you got to play the game. Don't don't hate the players, absolutely, hate the no. game, right? But yes, I agree. And it makes me wonder if we can ever go back to real news between parentheses, but to real news without indeed those clickbaity titles and without people feeling the need to be drawn into a story, but just starting to read a paper front to back of their own account or just looking at a website and clicking on items because... Just the topic interests them and not because they are drawn in because, because it's a, a five reasons why or a 10 arguments because and, and, and things like that. Right. Makes you a bit cynical. No, that's, that's true. And how would we decide what real reporting is? I mean, back in the day, 
real reporting was objective reporters. They did not report on their own opinion of what was going on, and their Mm -hmm. own opinion didn't influence what they covered. They gave the facts. You saw what you saw. You heard what you heard. And the newspaper still was a gentleman. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to pick out another couple of topics here, or you can. Have you been able to listen to any of the papers going on? I haven't listened to the discussions, but I've, indeed, I've looked through quite a few of the of the titles. And what stands out to you? Because I think they make the papers available as well to go read. I know, and I mean that's for my 2027 reading list, I guess by now, <laughs> with all the other things that have come out in, in only the past couple of days, but. One that I'm I'm really interested about is the fourth industrial revolution, Ooh. promise or peril. And I said I haven't read it yet, but hearing the just the title, it is the fourth industrial revolution is of course the data revolution that we that we are currently in. More and more data being used, and promise or peril. I think it's it's a bit of both, as usual with with these kind of suppositions. But it it certainly has a promise. It's certainly if you look into medical research or or more generic data-driven research, because if you indeed have good data sets that you can analyze, there is a lot of things that you can do for the greater good that can benefit mankind. And it's part of what we spoke about as well with, with Catherine Jarmel a few weeks ago. But of course, it has a danger that we also see on the, on, on the side of the surveillance industry and the social media and the companies that want to collect all of your data just to just to make financial gains from it. Right. Which seems almost natural from how data grew up, but not natural once you well, I guess not natural is not the word, but unnatural or in the fact that it's grown so fast to mean so much. And that somehow mm-hmm. or another the lines have not even blurred. They've just basically completely disappeared when it comes to the ethics of data. And I know Sala, our moderator for the podcast with the symposium, is on. And so if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself a little bit and please join the conversation. Yeah, of course. I'm a second year PhD student in the Innovation and Global Development Program at School for Innovation and Society. And I, I just think that the topics that you bring forward are very interesting and really catch the, you know, the, 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 the program uh, in itself. So how do we... How do we look at technology, but also the finer parts of technology, such as the things that produce forward privacy data, and then the questions of data rights and what does privacy even mean among the different societies, mm-hmm. right? So we we often talk about privacy, but privacy is, the way I see it globally, has different meanings among different classes and different it does. geographies. And so it's a very cultural, I mean, it's very connected to the culture as well. The question that I have really relates to an item that you brought forward. Can technology be both good and bad? And then the fourth revolution that we're basically in at this moment. So the the presentation that I had was about platforms and how platforms provide opportunity to people, especially in the informal economy, to be the way they describe, to be more economically productive, right? So... We have the Ubers. There are also a lot of other companies that are working now to formalize informal economies. The question that I had, and I ended my presentation with that, was can we think about these large technology firms, uh, such as an Uber, and my specific case was about Gojek in, in Indonesia, but can we think about these platforms 
without thinking about the monopoly that they try to create within society, which ultimately means that they need to have the sole right over the data. They're already only sharing whatever they need with their drivers in the network, but their whole existence is centered around owning that data, doing whatever they want with the data, and then morphing into other type of platforms, such as payments, etc. So the, my main question was, can we think about another structure where data is indeed shared, it is more democratic than we know now, and it is more beneficial for the people in their networks in a possible future. So can we think about an Uber that is actually more data sharing, more of a data sharing platform than a, a monopoly of, of the data they can? We would love to think of that. But if you think of proposing, and I think the title of the paper you're talking about is Technology and the Formalization of the Informal Economy. Perfect. So we will link to that as well in our resources so people can look at it themselves. But yeah, it's interesting that you bring up those examples, Uber especially, because one of our past guests and a friend is Chief Privacy Officer at Uber. Now, she joined them as their enforcement activities were beginning. And so it's interesting. I don't know if you went back and looked up some of the problems, but it wasn't necessarily the problem that they were keeping the data to themselves because that actually was a problem. They were selling data, but the data that they were selling was data that users would not have thought they would have collected. And uh, I don't know if you went back and studied that, but their databases Essentially, what it came down to, and this is from my recollection, I am not reading anything formal, so I may or may not be slightly incorrect in my recollection. (laughs) But even if you uninstalled the app, it left the tracker on your phone. And so it was not only tracking where people were, but it was pulling out then profiles or suppositions that they were making about people. So, in other words, if you went to church every Sunday at 9 a.m., They knew where you went to church, therefore they knew what religion you were, and they knew that you were a devout churchgoer. They were also capturing, if I don't, if I recall correctly, things that were happening around the household. So I believe that they were capturing if people had pets, or they were capturing if there was dissension in the household and yelling. They were capturing sleep patterns. So it was really interesting the amount of data that was being captured and then they were selling it and using it as these profiles of people. So when you talk about are they creating a monopoly of data and can that data be shared, I believe that their collection of data has been vastly drawn back into what we would expect to be fair and transparent. They're still a tech company. It's probably not everything you would expect. But it would be interesting to know when you say, should they be sharing this data? So let's say they're not collecting all of those realms of data. They're basically collecting trip data. And so what would your premise of sharing then be for a more democratic society? I'd love to know. Well, I mean, I see it more from the understand, understanding what is collected, okay. understanding how it's used, and also understanding how it's monetized. I mean, those are... Ah, I like it. How do they draw conclusions and implications from combining data? And are they buying other sets of data or acquiring other sets of data and combining them in new ways to come out with new types of profiles? Correct. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 see, no, I see no reason for anyone not to be able to be presented with some kind of a, a pathway. So we collected this and this is what it eventually will do. 
And, and so my, my concern is not so much about the, not so much about what they're doing right now, but more of a, can we think about another type of, you know, maybe some more philosophical question. Like, can we think about other type of, of being, another type of monetization, another type of, without creating mm-hmm. this, this imbalance in society where you have right. two, three companies that are really owning and understanding more about you than you. Understanding more about you than oh well. yeah, Facebook has more data points on individuals than I could name about myself. Mm-hmm. Trust me. Yeah, so that's a, that's the a thing, and I think with the efforts that we make with the certificates, etc., we're already trying to build that path. But just yeah, just right. We're trying. Yeah. I, I think monopolies are never a never a good idea, and I yeah. agree with you. It would be helpful if we start looking at these issues a different way and. What I'm I'm hearing between the lines in, in in what you are suggesting is is almost like open source data sets of individuals' data, right. and there I'm not completely sure how we can align that with the fundamental rights protection that we also have. Not that I can align the business models of many of those monopolists with the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection. Let me be clear about that. But to have those open source data sets available also seems at least challenging. And then you probably come somewhere in between where you get to the data vaults discussion, where people can create their own data vault, where they store their personal data, and then can decide what to share with whom at what given moment in time. So with a taxi company, you just share your location and your payment details because that's all they need to complete a transaction. With a music streaming service, you share your preferences and your payment details, but they don't need to know your location. I'm in the Netherlands, but maybe I much prefer the top 100 list of music from uh, Brazil or from Indonesia, because I, I, I travel a lot and I have good memories to the music in those countries. So why would they need to know where I physically am? And Fraud prevention. Fraud prevention? Well... Maybe, maybe that could be done in a different way as right. well, if there are strong credentials back through that data vault. So maybe that is the, the better option to look at. Will that hinder their business models of the monopolist? Probably. Oh, but yeah. as my former commissioner said, it is not up to the law to comply with the business model of a, a private sector company. It is right. the company that needs to comply with the law. Let's be frank here. I think when those of us that read privacy notices, and I'll be the first to say here that I don't read all privacy notices, but there are privacy notices that are very transparent that we buy data about you or about users from other databases or data brokers or people who wouldn't or companies that wouldn't qualify as data brokers, but who sell the data. And I combine it with data I have about you and other data I buy to create new conclusions about you. And most of us have no idea what that means. We know that means that they're buying data sets, but most of us seem to think that buying that data set is exactly what Paul was saying. You're buying the data or you're giving the data that relates strictly to what you're doing. You're not thinking about the other data they're collecting. And this comes back to, you know, the age old stories about the Samsung TVs with the cameras. Of course, they were recording or the baby monitors. Of course, they were recording and and monitoring what people were saying. I had a newscaster one time that wanted me on, and he was laughing about something that the White House press secretary had said about, yeah, is your toaster watching you? 
And he was mocking her. And I went, uh, well, it could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, who's monitoring what's in your toaster? And if the camera is so microscopic, you can't tell. I mean, are you paranoid? You could be. Yeah. My, like I said, my husband has Google Nest in the house. And I don't think he knows what I do for a living. Well, I mean, the, the Google and Apple smart assistants, people actually listening yeah. into snaps of the conversations to be able to transcribe what was being said to train the algorithms behind those smart assistants. It makes perfect sense, come to think of it, that something like that would be happening, but people were not aware. Right. Well, and the other thing is, like I said, even if you are aware, you're told that they buy other data sets, you, we as people not in this field cannot even imagine the types of data they have to be able to understand the sheer amount of information they have about you, the data points. Like I said, I think Facebook has an average, I think the number is 15,000, it may be 50,000 data points on every user. I couldn't name 2,000 data points about myself. Just the sheer magnitude of the data sets that are out there and how the AI runs to pull in bits of data you would never imagine would be connected This is what Catherine was talking about in data science, is that you just have no idea what little nugget of information that might be anonymized from another source could be combined with other sources to connect this data together. And so, Salah, I agree with you. I think it's absolutely outrageous, the monopolies, the technology, the economies that are built on the sheer amount of data that we have. but. And I'm going to go back to to Paul's original one he talked about. Does a solution become a problem? Yes, it does. I mean, this is what we're doing. So how do we go back and we break something? Everyone says, you know, don't fix it if it's not broken. Well, it's broken. Mm-hmm. But I think kind of like a bad break setting, you've got to re-break it to fix it. How do we break it? Is this what the fourth, the fourth revolution is going to be about? I don't know. Is us breaking the technology? (laughs) I think the solution is actually in the title of one of the other papers. (laughs) And that is to learn to love the wicked problem. Ah, yes, by Jamie Winterton, another one of my absolute favorite people. And I picked that out because I'm going to have to ask Jamie if she pulled that from one of our podcasts. Not that I think that wicked problems is uh, necessarily ours, but it was... uh, It was suggested by Ruby or or Michelle. Yeah, Michelle Dennett. It was was said by Michelle Dennity. Loved (laughs) it that she said that, you know, someone had pointed out to her one time that these were wicked problems we were trying to solve. And we use that as the title of one of our podcasts with Michelle and Ruby. And Jamie is phenomenal. I also know her through ASU. As a matter of fact, I think she and I and Katina were on a panel together on Smart Cities in talking about this. And so, yeah, back to the title of her paper. But yes, yeah, so it's these are wicked problems. I mean, that's the things. They're thorny, they're complex, they're difficult. We all see what a better world would look like without these problems. Complexity arises in how do we go back and fix them? Because that's what it's going to take. It's, it's going to have to take, as people say, I don't know what World War Three is going to look like, but World War Four is going to be fought with knives and rocks. Mm-hmm. Probably, yes. So how do we go back and fix it? Well, I think a lot of the solutions are probably in the hundreds of papers that are discussed at this conference. Oh my gosh, are these not brilliant people looking at so many different elements of it and tackling the idea of how do you go back and fix it? 
Absolutely. But I'm going to actually go to the website of the conference itself and talk about what this actually is. So public interest technology is just specifically to read, and I'll give you the the website for this and the resources, of course. This was the first international conference of its kind talking about emergent technology in public interest technology. They welcomed all new ideas and theories that would be critical to the future, and the IEEE SSIT has been working on PIT themes since 1972. I love the acronyms. (laughs) And so what is PIT? So public interest technology serves to address the social needs and challenges in society. And people working in this space ask communities what their needs are first without presuming they know what's best for them and then generally use a participatory approach to innovation with values in mind and cultural awareness. Now, if I could take that central theme and go back to what Sala was saying about the companies that are creating the monopolies in data, and I think they're not approaching society. Of course not. They're private companies. They're not approaching societies asking what the needs are first. They're identifying what the needs are best for private companies and putting that in place without considering the public interest impacts. And I think that that's what's missing in a lot of private companies is what's the public impact. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that we talk about first a lot is a lot of startup companies build their technology. They have no intention of starting up as public interest. They're starting up as private for profit and they want to be bought. But it's interesting how when they build their technology, they don't think about privacy needs. What they think about is how to build their product and how to sell it. But unfortunately, because they're not paying attention to private needs, if they are bought by a company that actually has ethics or rules or they follow the laws, they're devaluing themselves because they're not considering the private, the personal data aspects of it. And I try to tell people to remove the word privacy because people have preconceived ideas of what privacy means. And Mm -hmm. usually it's a negative one. But if you think about it's not privacy, it's how do you manage the personal information of individuals? And if you consider how do you manage information related to individuals, then many people will understand how that connects to the technology that they're building. And perhaps if they built their technology with privacy by design baked into it from the beginning, maybe they wouldn't have some of these wicked problems as they roll it out because they would be conscious of the public interest need, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I think you I think you're absolutely right there. I was trying to find while we were talking as well if if some of the papers had already been published, but that is not yet the case. I think that will be done at a later time because of course this being part of the peer review, it is also still part of being further input for the writing of the papers themselves. But I really like conferences like this where smart people come together and bring forward their ideas. And it is not just the same usual suspects telling the same usual stories, but these are the new views that... Yeah, the innovative ones. Yeah, and that two, three, four years down the road, hopefully will be part of the mainstream discussion also at the privacy conferences that that we attend. Right. Or at least so I hope. Well, and like our conversation with Tom Besor, who is an experienced professional, but moving into the privacy field, I love the fact that the people entering this, Sala being one of them, 
comes into our field without preconceived ideas mm-hmm. of how things should be done. Being from, where'd you say you're from? The Netherlands as well? Yeah, I'm from, I'm from the Netherlands. Yeah, and then coming to live in Arizona. So you get the best of me and Paul. I mean, you can tell I'm not from Arizona, but I live here. <laughs> Quite a different societal shift from you. So you bring the European mindset on the fundamental rights of individuals over to the United States. Mm-hmm. And just transitioning that mindset over here, has that impacted the studies that you're in and what you're learning in university here about how to tackle these wicked problems? Yeah, I mean, I mean for, first first to start, I mean, I, I lived in different places around the world. Um, and I saw oh, nice. different, different ideas of privacy and what does privacy mean. One of the strange things, and Paul must... Uh, I think he would second that, is that the, the stronger privacy laws are in the country, the higher the amount of surveillance that is conducted, uh, which, which is, I mean, by, by government, at least, which is, which is odd to say. Um, so, Uh-oh, you're going to get him started, Salah. That's his favorite topic is government surveillance. Yeah, so it's the different ideas around privacy around the world. I lived in the Middle East. It's, it, it's very culturally bonded it's it's and so the way i see it in my work i do question things like i I look specifically at the private companies and how they influence the different communities around the world especially with their internal policies and how government policies can are able to protect and accelerate the human development in in a certain place i come from the financial world so when we talk about when we talk about the financial world looking at payments we're looking at that is a whole different level of privacy. I mean, it, it is by, the, it starts off as a very intimate type of privacy, right? So know what, you know, tell me what you're buying and I can tell you your personality. That's basically it. So it's, Which is why we have laws on the books about video purchase privacy and book purchasing privacy because it was getting out some bad rumors and press on members of Congress and what movies they had purchased, I think, is what happened. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to hide anymore. I Apparently, that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do their best. <laughs> when it impacts them directly. At least they want to hide it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's fascinating. But you're right. Yeah, but back to your question. What you see is multinationals really forcing a standard around yeah. the world as well. Dismissing the, the differences, dismissing the needs. Uh, different communities, and also the vulnerability of certain communities. One needs to be more protected than the other. But Google waltzing around Google Pay, for example, is going to set standards around the world in terms of what the, what they want to know, what they will absorb right. as as data. So I see some frictions in the future, but at the same, yeah, and then that's why it needs to be discussed, and that's why this platform, you're right, this conference is is. Absolutely great for that. Well, and that's what they need. I do think, yeah, I do think it's a concern that companies are setting the global standards. If you look, for example, about the whole discussion about whether or not nudity is allowed on social media, and especially on Facebook and Instagram, a man's nipple is okay, a woman's nipple is not. Because that is the standard that Facebook has determined it wants to live by. And who's to say that one is more sexually evocative than the other? Exactly. But also, who, why would Facebook be the one determining that for all of the world based on their US-based standards, whereas in, in Europe or in Africa, the, the considerations might be completely different. 
So why would we then all have to live by the American-led example? Or vice versa, why would GDPR be the perfect privacy law for all of the world when it is so clearly enshrined in European fundamental rights, but maybe not in the ones that are accustomed in Southeast Asia? And where in Japan or in China, the cultural relations people have towards each other are very different from how people in Europe or in the US or in Latin America live together. Well, and that's true. And several thoughts come in about that. One, that there are cultural education among the different cultures for business purposes. So in other words, if your private business hinges on not offending the person you're working with, they actually have classes and they teach people how to act right. But they don't when it comes to societal norms and mores. And I've created charts and I've, I've tracked what the definition of sensitive personal information is around the world. And people would be shocked to know the differences between what sensitive personal information is. And Paul and I have talked about this before in Europe, political information and ideations and registrations is very sensitive personal information, whereas here in the U.S., our voter registration polls are public. So they're publicly available. So that makes no sense to them. But there are countries where personality, that's my favorite one, sorry. There are countries where personality is considered (laughs) sensitive personal information. I believe it's Israel. But they consider personality to be sensitive personal information. So if you roll that into this concept of mores and norms among societies, you're absolutely right. The differences among the nations are going to drive a lot of how this is accepted. Look at China and how they're passing or trying to pass rather robust privacy and cybersecurity laws. Absolutely. But they don't apply to the government. No. Because the government has their databases and has their surveillance and they have their social scores about people's activity and what they do online. And so it's it's a huge driver in cultural differences is how we even approach data and how data is handled in the courts if it ever even reaches that. And as Salah mentioned, we do have privacy laws in Europe that apply to the government that sometimes are just bluntly ignored because it's more convenient to collect all the data than to stick to the privacy law. Right. And I, I, right. Yeah, if I'm the hypocrisy is, I mean, we're obviously we're talking about hypocrisy, right? Let's call it mm-hmm. No, hypocrisy <laughs> is probably a good term for it. Data hypocrisy. Yeah. I believe if you see the, the house of Mark Zuckerberg in, in, out on Hawaii, he has pretty large walls and there's a lot of privacy for him. Pretty there. large, huh? Right. So mm-hmm. and I, I believe he was also asked about what we can know about him. And yeah, it just doesn't, I mean, obviously he will not tell a lot about his private, yet he knows everything about, I mean, he has access to many of us around the world. Um, so, oh, yeah, that was the infamous type, uh, the infamous uh, hearing in, in Congress when Zuckerberg was asked where he slept the night before and he didn't want to yeah. say because he had a right to privacy. <laughs> exactly. Well, he started paying a lot more attention to privacy, I believe, when he had a child. Yes, absolutely. And somehow or another, you start thinking outside the strictly commerce terms into personal family life terms. And it it makes a big difference. It makes a really, really big difference when you change the lens in which you're looking at the problem or the solution from. 
And of course, when I uh, was just thinking Mark Zuckerberg, I was thinking the famous picture of his laptop where he has the cameras and the microphones covered up. That was interesting. He could order a laptop that doesn't have cameras or microphones, I mean, frankly. But still, the famous picture of where they're covered up and so clearly had some idea of, of a level of privacy that would be desired by a person. And what shocks people, especially if we're going down the Facebook realm, is people that aren't part of Facebook, but they're still part of their data sets because other people bring them into Facebook through pictures or through conversation or through posting about somewhere they've been. And it brings in an image or a mention of a person to where that person is already in their data set, Mm -hmm. even if they're not part of Facebook which is really crazy. And uh, when you say, why is it up to social media companies to determine what is proper and what's not proper? Think of all the alternative social media companies that have popped up now through the U.S. election or post-election, where there's, what is it, Parler and MeWe. I think they popped up years ago, but all of a sudden they're becoming very popular. And it's it's interesting what people are willing to give and take for services based on what data they're willing to exchange or people they're willing to socialize with. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, looking at this whole range of topics for papers, we mentioned it's literally hundreds of them. What I'd like to do is once the papers are are out, but to pick a few, keep a lookout for those in, in the coming year and maybe invite some of the authors back to discuss the papers with us in our season two, as of January next year. And then we can hear some of those voices. I would love to, because some of these are fascinating. And it's, it's interesting knowing that some of them are addressing the topics when they don't have the experience working in the world to really understand some of the thorny issues they're tackling. But that's not a criticism. That's a yes. They're coming at it without any preconceived ideas and saying, why not this? And the challenge is going to be working with people like Paul and I that have the practical applications that we're going because of this and this and this. But fight us, challenge us. Paul and I are pretty much not the ones you're going to have to fight. But bring it on. I mean, that's the thing. Bring the new blood. Bring the new thoughts. Bring the new celestials. Challenge why something can't be done or why it hasn't been done or why it shouldn't be done. Challenge that, push it. That will make all of us better. Exactly. Make them justify why, because a lot of times their why really doesn't make any sense. And even if it does make sense, is it hurting more people than it's helping? Is it for better or for worse? And that's where Mm -hmm. having the new blood, the new brains, the new approaches is really, really going to make this technology sector much better worldwide than what we've seen up to this point because data is just multiplying out outrageously. And if we don't get a handle, we're already out of control. But if we don't try to bring it back into control, then I mean, I don't know where we're going to be in five years, 10 years with the harms that are going to come to humanity. So on that very positive note, (laughs) we'll conclude our very first live episode of Serious Privacy. And thank you for those who have been listening in, for those who listen to this as part of the conference later on in the the week, or of course, to those of you who listen in the regular podcast feed where the episode will appear as well. Let's say thank you. Thank you so much to Katina and to the organizers for having us on here, letting us look at the fantastic work that you're doing 
and having some insight into what we can look forward to, to having new minds and new solutions just breaking into this. I'm very excited about it. Absolutely. And promise we will bring back some of these voices in our season two next year. If you like this live version of the podcast, why don't you take a look at some of our earlier episodes? They are in your favorite podcast app, as well as on our website, trustart.com. Should you have any questions or suggestions, if you want to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us via Sirius Privacy at trustart.com or via Twitter at @podcastprivacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as EuropeLB. Thank you for listening to Sirius Privacy Live. Enjoy the rest of the conference and until our next episode. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey, listeners. Looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesi Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.